0: Welcome back to The Long Short. Over the coming few months, we'll be bringing something a little different, the Perspective Series in partnership with KPMG. This podcast series will feature conversations with leading CEOs and founders of alternative investment firms from around the world. And today, we're excited to share with you one of a series of conversations we've had with them. Our guests share their visions on a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent in the context of the fierce war for talent as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges, and much, much more. The discussions have been led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of AIM is Long Short, and John Budzina, Managing Director and U.S. National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments in KPMG. So sit back, we hope you'll enjoy the show, and thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Perspectives, featuring conversations with alternative investment leaders, from across the world.
1: And today we're, we're delighted to be with Anthony Todd, uh, the co-founder and the CEO of London-based Aspect Capital, a multi-billion dollar systematic firm. Hey, there's very little Anthony has not experienced being at the top of his profession for the past 30 years. So ask for something for everyone in this episode. Anthony, it's great to be speaking
2: to you today. John, thank you very much for the introduction. Great pleasure to be here.
1: And so Anthony, you know, you currently run a worldwide investment firm based out of London. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you decide to work in the asset management industry to start
2: with? Yeah, I mean some sort of background. Um you know, at um, at uni I, I actually read physics. You know, I absolutely adored physics, was kind of passionate about it with a superb course um uh, that I that that I kind of studied. But actually, in the year before going up to uni, I, I spent a year in the research laboratory working at GC Marconi, um, and probably took the rather short-term view. But you no, know, but my view was that you no, know, that's actually a future career in physics. It just wasn't for me. I just wanted to go and do something else. Um, so I started interviewing for, you know, for other roles and you know, started um, kind of talking to kind of to various firms in the field of finance, and immediately just kind of found a series of, kind of different kind of stockbroking firms. You know, at that stage, this was kind of pre-Big Bang. Um, they were fast-paced, entrepreneurial, uh, very kind of strong cultures. Exciting, um, um, you know, super smart people to work with. And I thought that's the kind of environment, that's the kind of culture that I want to work in. So, hence the move from you know, from physics through to finance.
0: And in in that move, Anthony, then where where did you start out? Then what what role did you start out in? Given this mathematical background, then presumably it would have been on that quant side or whatever. Um, that would have been described at the time,
2: yes? Well, I mean, that it it actually is an inter- interesting kind of point because, in, you know, in fact at that stage, this is um, the right way, right way back in the early 1980s. Um, and of course, a lot of people today in terms of the, the fixed income markets, people are kind of drawing analogies with, you know, what happened in the, you know, in the kind of fixed income markets um, um, you know, during that period. And the early 1980s obviously kind of represented the very start of the major bull market. We've seen in bond markets over the course of the last kind of 40 years. Um, so at that stage, you know, kind of stockbroking firms were very much kind of dominated by you know, their equity trading desks. Um, bonds were just very much a uh, you know, bolt-on. Nobody, of course, during the 1970s and very early 1980s, nobody was interested in the like, bond markets. Uh, but suddenly the bull market started, and there was this kind of rush from stockbroking firms to bring in people who had a background in science or background in maths um, who could actually understand the fixed-income markets and actually just do fixed-income maths. Um so I was actually a you know, kind of part of that whole kind of diaspora actually from you know from um maths, from physics, from uh, engineering kind of backgrounds, it was this kind of you know, hunt for for, you know, for people by these kind of stockbroking firms um to actually kind of populate their, their fixed income trading desks.
0: And who would have been in that space at the time, Anthony, thinking thinking of what you were doing back then and then looking ahead to that evolution of your career at the start, anyway, as to what that defining moment was that pointed you to settling on pursuing the particular type of investment strategy that you're doing now.
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, I was thinking about this earlier, and it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think there were actually two defining moments. You know, for me, um, the defining moment actually, number one, um, was was you know, it was back at uni. Um, where I was kind of studying physics with Michael Adam and with Marty Lewick. And Michael Adam and Marty Lewick, um, the A and the L of AHL. You know, they left the kind of Union and immediately kind of started um, uh, running a business together that was the the precursor to AHL, but that was a kind of business that um, started researching, kind of running, developing um trend-following models. Um, so that so I was just very lucky, very just in a very fortunate situation, um, to actually kind of get to know, you know Mike Adam and Martin Lewick. Mike Adam was actually my physics practical partner, so we worked very closely together um, you know, for, you know, for a number of years. So I think that was defining moment number one. And then obviously I kind of saw the growth of, of that business. Um, that was called Brockham Securities in the early 1980s. Of course, they teamed up with David Harding in, in 1987. So i saw the kind of growth of that business during the 1980s. I think the second um, defining moment for me and what very much kind of catalyzed the the launch of Aspect, so now I'm kind of I'm I'm moving forward into the mid-1990s. I joined uh, AHL in 1992, um, so joined them at a relatively early stage. Uh, They had 200 million under management's team of about 20 people Um, and although man at that point um, had a majority stake in the company, AHL retained its its autonomy. It had its own board. It had its own investment committee. Um, had effect, uh, you know, effective, practical kind of independence. In 1994, on the run up to Man's IPO, Man actually bought out the minority interests and actually acquired the remaining um, stake in AHL. So it took it kind of 100% into ownership. Um, and again, very important to emphasise. Of course, you know Man's done the most remarkable job over the course of the last kind of, 30 years with that business. But in 1994, that did very much represent a, a huge kind of cultural shift in the company, um, and it was that kind of cultural shift that very much kind of triggered um, uh, my departure from the kind of business, uh, teaming up with uh, Marty lewitt teaming up with Eugene Lambert, who'd been a head of training system development at A.H.L., um, and we together decided to actually kind of move on and, and start our Aspect. That was 1997.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So, when when Aspect Capital was formed, what was sort of your vision for the firm at that time, and sort of what were your goals, and how do you would you compare them uh, at that point in time to what they are today?
2: Yeah, I mean, John, it's a, it's, it's really interesting just thinking about you know, about the history then, and I think it's interesting to actually look back and think about the the managed futures sector, you know, in the mid nineteen nineties. Um, so, if we actually just can turn the clock back to that that spell. Um the main investors in managed futures strategies you know, back in the nineteen nineties were high net worth investors. Uh, they weren't institutions, um, and there were very few institutional investors for very good reasons. Uh, the um managed futures strategies were typically packaged up as principal protected or guaranteed funds, um, with um fixed maturities, uh, with monthly liquidity, uh, with very high levels of fees, um, feed the um um you know, to incentivize the distribution kind of network, very high levels of kind of volatility, and that was an extremely kind of successful business model at the time. but our view at at um, at aspect and the the vision behind aspect was that here was a a source of return or a style of return, a style of performance a set of performance characteristics that could be of great value to institutional investors, you know the ability for managed futures to provide um, returns uncorrelated with stocks, uncorrelated with bonds, in a wide range of different market environments. We could see that this is something that could be of huge value to, you know, to institutional investors, but packaged up in a guaranteed format, in a principal-protected format, with limited liquidity, with high fees, it was simply going to be of no interest to in institutional investors at all. And that was the thinking behind you Nicola's know, setting up Aspect. What we wanted to do is build a business that would meet the requirements of institutional investors. Um, So first and foremost actually came um, um, the importance of actually investing heavily in research, because it's obviously called research that drives innovation, that actually drives performance. So we want to invest heavily on the the research side, but of course also build a scalable managed account platform that meant our investors could have daily liquidity rather than monthly liquidity. Um, We could actually customize different programs, it wouldn't just be a one-size-fits-all type approach. Um, We wanted to actually provide that degree of kind of broad level of kind of customization and combine that then with a high level of transparency, um, high level of attention to detail in terms of risk management, corporate governance, um, uh, and the ability to be able to service high level institutions. That, That was the thinking behind setting Up Aspect in 1997.
1: And what would you look at the goals today to be? You look you look forward the next five years. How is how has that changed? Are there are there new um, objectives that the firm is looking to?
2: I, I actually I think I mean John in terms in terms of the the founding aims behind the business. Um, so, you know you know, meet, you know very much research led performance driven, um, meeting the requirements of institutional investors, working in partnership with you know with our institutions. Um, providing a range of different capabilities. Uh, so not we obviously can kind of started in, in the kind of trend following area you know, over many years. We've diversified and now um, have, uh, um, have set up a kind of broad range of different capabilities. You know, that was the founding vision behind the behind the business, and I think where we are today, so the vision for what we want to create over the course of the next five years, ten years, fifteen years, is very consistent with those founding principles.
1: So the founding principles work great. <laughs> um, they continue to
2: hold <laughs> true. Well, I mean, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting to, for me to look back, John, because, you know, um, actually when we set up the business, um, it was very much in the heat of the, you know, the internet boom. Um, so, booming comes stock market, booming comes NASDAQ, uh, and very little interest in diversifying strategies. Um, so we were, so when Martha, Eugene and I kind of, kind of set up the company, we were very much kind of preaching the benefits of managed futures, the importance of, kind of diversification. Um, the uh, you know, particularly, particularly, and kind of given the backdrop of that huge, kind of, said, kind of boom in the kind of technology kind of sector, and, and nobody listened. Nobody listened because people were just purely and simply interested in, in that kind of technology area. Then, of course, the whole kind of technology bubble burst um, between 2000 and 2003. <clears throat> you know, S and P pretty much halved over that period. And we and um, our peers, the mass future sector in general, was able to kind of generate very strong positive returns in each of those four years, the so two thousand through two thousand and three, and that very much kind of catalyzed huge kind of pickup and interest in um you know in the entire sector so i think there are, there' are some interesting parallels between that period and and frankly what we're seeing today.
0: Anthony, we've got a, a wide variety of of listeners that tune in um, to these interviews, and you mentioned um, a couple of times trend following. And um, not everybody would understand what trend following is. So, for for those who who don't understand um, the essence of the trend following strategy, could you describe that briefly, please?
2: Yep, I, I can try to. I mean, I, I, the, the the first thing you know, when I can talk about trend following. I think it's really important to kind of come back to uh, you know, what returns are we trying to generate? What, what's, the, what's the role of, of trend following? You know, why is it such a, um, I think, a, um, you know, a valuable strategy in investors' portfolios? Um, the key role of, kind of trend following is to be able to provide diversifying returns independent of, of stock and bond markets, particularly, not only, but particularly during protracted market crises. So particularly during periods such as we saw last year, you know, during the inflationary kind of crisis, um, during the GFC, during kind of 2008, you know, and then I've just mentioned the technology bubble collapsing come 2000, 2003. Um, so those are periods where you know, managed futures was able to you know, deliver strong positive returns um, in a persistent kind of market crisis. How does it do that? Um, um, the... I think that, you know, although the the managed future sector, the trend-following sector, it's a disparate sector, I think there are a few common themes that run between the various different key competitors in the field. The first is um, in terms of trend-following. We talk about medium-term trend-following. What we at Aspect are trying to do is identify trends or momentum um, over periods of around two to three months or longer. That, for us, is is the definition of medium-term. In terms of markets that we trade, uh, we trade the world's most liquid um, and most kind of diversifying kind of markets we can find. So we trade eight different market sectors, Um, those sectors span stock indices, um, credit, uh, long-term bonds, short-term rates, currencies, energies, metals, and agricultural. So it's a highly kind of diversified range of markets. Um, in our longest running program, uh, we run, uh, we trade around um, 180 you know, different markets. So it, that diversification across markets, but I think most importantly, is we have no bias in our models at all. So we're equally able to capture positive momentum um, or declining momentum or kind of falling markets. And we do that in an entirely kind of, systematic, totally kind of, disciplined uh, manner. So then if you, if you look at what we do, as I said, it's, you know, we, we, you know, in terms of, kind of stocks and bonds, yes, we trade kind of stocks and bonds. But it's only a small part of what we do. It's a far more kind of diversified kind of portfolio than a traditional kind of portfolio. We're capitalizing on that, that momentum, on those trends over a period of two, three months or longer, and we're equally able to navigate rising and falling markets. In some sense, it should, should be no surprise that trend following is able to kind of generate those returns, that style of returns I kind of talked about earlier.
1: I mean, 2022 is an example. If you look at the trend-following firms um, you know, as a group, they perform very, very well. Um, and how would you look at your strategy as you look forward um, as to how applicable it would be? What do you see as the opportunities and, and maybe why 2022 um, and, and into 2023 was a particularly great time for trend-following firms?
2: In firms where, of you know, trend following will be able to kind of generate strong positive returns is when there are strong themes across uh, you know across a range of kind of different markets, those themes actually driving investor flows, those investor flows driving trends or driving momentum in the markets. That's exactly of course what we actually kind of saw during the course of twenty twenty two. There's suddenly this kind of fear about inflation um move from globalization to isolation. It's a move from quantitative easing to kind of quantitative kind of tightening and a move to a sticky, inflationary environment, that, that drove those kind of persistent kind of trends. Um, so that's you know, why we were able to kind of generate strong returns last year, because we saw those, that strong momentum in, um, in fixed income markets, in the currency markets, and in the energy markets. Um, I think the other kind of points to bear in mind you know, is, of course, we, saw, you know, we've, we see today, and we saw during the course of last year, a diverse range of economic conditions. Um, throughout the world. So significant slowdown, for instance, in China, um, Chinese authorities easing policy. Um, The Japanese authorities still retaining in place yield curve control. And meanwhile, significant tightening um, happening in the UK, the US, and in Europe. When you see those disparate economic environments and disparate responses from central banks, that again can just lead to significant divergence in In policy and divergence of of performance um, of different asset classes in different regions and that opens up a range of different opportunities for us so again we saw that in evidence last year we're getting to come see that in evidence this this year Um, environments we're all very careful to actually talk about environments which are more challenging for us environments which are more challenging for us environments either when markets are range-bound so um, you know, when markets are range bound, there are no trends and our models are constantly hunting for trends that aren't there, um, or environments where we actually see very sharp inflection points against the prevailing trend. Um, but we're in a unfortunate situation that markets spend their time trending you know, for more of the time than they actually um, remain in a range bound environment, um, hence the ability of trend points to generate that, um, you know, those are tr- contracted returns over the long term.
0: Anthony, it's been remarked that long-term trend following uh, is scarcely good enough to run a hedge fund. That, that's been um, a criticism. Uh, and, and a popular rationale being overcrowding, simply too many too many funds doing the same thing within a particular strategy. And the past number of years, as I'm sure you know, we've seen a difference of opinion being expressed by some of the industry's pioneers. Uh, some saying that trend following no longer work and others, including yourself, arguing very vociferously that it does. Why are you so convinced then that it does?
2: I, I, mean, I, I think you know, we're always going to be you know, data-led. Um, so, you know, so to me, um, um, I, you know, I think one of the great strengths of this kind of sector um, is its durability, is the, is the length of track record. Um, So, um, actually, if you really look at the the genesis of the Managed Futures sector, um, you have to go go back to the 1970s, Um, and actually there are a number of firms around today in in our sector which actually have the start of their contract record running back to the early 1970s. So I think the first thing is, I'd I'd say to anybody who's kind of questioning the sector, I'd say, well, look at the data, just go look at the data. Um, Actually, in terms of the Managed Futures sector, it's one of the longest running. Possibly argue it's the the longest running alternative investment sector. Um, I said, with, you know, our track record goes back, comes 25 years. A number of confirms in, the, in you know, in our sector can actually point to track records going back kind of 40 or 50 years, with a consistent ability to be able to generate those kind of strong diversifying returns, independent of stock and bond markets. So that's a, that's a rare that's a rare characteristic in the alternative investment sector. And to me, it's interesting today, if you look at the outlook um, and again, we're not economists, so, um, you know, so we can only just kind of point to um, the, the risks that investors face, but you know, to us, investors actually kind of face three potential market outcomes or economic outcomes, soft landing, hard landing, or no landing, no landing being more stagflationary type environment. Now, I, I think one of the, the, again, the great strengths of our sector, is that actually we can point back over the course of the last 50 years to other periods in history where we have seen a soft landing in the mid-1990s. We can point to times when we've seen a hard landing. That's when I started my career in the financial markets in the early 1980s. Or we can point to a stagflationary environment. That's the 1970s. And you can see how managed futures, how the CTA sector has performed in those different environments. And consistently it's been able to provide those very attractive, diversifying returns.
1: KPMG is a global professional services firm, providing audit, tax and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. But as aspect capital continues to grow, um, how do you continue to um, provide alpha at the scale um, uh, at th- that you have in the past? That's often difficult for firms to make that transition.
2: Yeah, and, and John, thank you for that. And, and I didn't cover the, you know, the kind of crowding point that, um, that, you, know, that you raised earlier. And, and I think you know, whenever um, this sector, whenever the managed futures sector has a, a difficult spell, then immediately people say, "Ah, you know, told you so." It's become overcrowded. You know the the market impact. The, the effect has actually effectively been, um, you know, crowded out. We have have looked at that potential kind of crowding risk on, you know, on a number of occasions, um, as have some of our competitors. Um, and we do that quite simply by actually kind of building a naive kind of trend following model. Um, we can apply that to the the, the common commonly traded set of markets, say a subset of, say, 100 of the most commonly traded markets in our sector, and then we can, you know, again, come back to, we're very much kind of data-led. So, you know, the answer is in the, in the data. Um, we can actually then model, well, you know, on the basis of the size of the managed futures sector, which is kind of well-documented, then what is the total consumption of the sector in terms of open interest, in terms of average daily volume? Now, conducting that piece of analysis actually points to the fact that we're a long way away, a long way away from any kind of crowding effect you know, in the markets. And again, I think it's one of the great strengths of, of this approach is that we are trading the world's most liquid markets. We're trading the world's most liquid fixed income markets, stock indices, currency markets, you know, energy markets. Um, and, and actually that analysis will actually you know, overstate the degree of volume consumption, capacity consumption because we're not even taking into account actually then the underlying cash markets or the option markets or the swap markets. But you know, the, the, crowding, the crowding hypothesis just simply does, does not hold water.
0: And you can't have alpha without having the best people. So how do you then attract and retain the best people for your firm?
2: Um, and it is, you know, it is competitive. It's, there's, there's no doubt at all. It's, you know, it's highly competitive. Um, but I mean, I think what's interesting, you know, we're often asked, you know, today is it more difficult to hire people than it was ten years ago, fifteen years ago? I don't think it's more difficult. I just think the competitive landscape has shifted. You know, whereas ten or fifteen years ago, we would say, or fifteen years ago, we were in competition with the major banks and the kind of trading desks. You know, today we're more, more in kind of competition with. Um, you know, with the technological firms, major kind of technological firms in the world. Um, So, you know, the the competition is still highly intense. How do we compete? Um, I think we can compete, and we are competing successfully for for talent. Um, We've recruited actively as the business has grown over the course of the last kind of few years. We continue to recruit actively at the moment. Um, And I think our our track record of of talent retention, um, which is also important, um, uh, equally important. Um, is very strong. I think there are two key components there. One is, you know, of course, compensation plays a, a, you know, a very important role. We have to kind of make sure that we're rewarding people um, com- you know, competitively. But it's not just purely the headline numbers. There are other, I think, important facets to our approach. You know, by example, um, you know, everybody in the company has the ability to be able to acquire shares you know, in the business. So the vast majority of people in the business you know, are shareholders of the company itself. Um, we have an active uh, option scheme, you know, in the business, um, you know, which, where again, we've kind of issued kind of options. This is going back over a 20-year period, again, to make sure everybody's interests are aligned. But I think as important as kind of compensation structure, um, you know, is, um, um, you, know, um, it, you know, is the culture of the business. And when Eugene Martin and I set up the business, actually back in 1997, one of the first things we did before we did any research, before we wrote any code, um, we decided it was important. We actually set out a cultural doc- document, actually just kind of setting out the kind of key, our key kind of cultural beliefs, um, because our view was unless the three of us could actually agree on that culture, then we frankly we just didn't have a business. Um, that that culture document still. You know, it's on the, the aspect network. We refer to it on, you know on a regular basis. Um, you know, it's something we can kind of talk about at company meetings when I talk to new joiners in the company, it's something I, I know I talk about as well. And that cultural document very much kind of set out the importance of teamwork, the importance of a collegiate approach, um, the, the importance of mutual respect, the importance of integrity, the importance of, of, you know, kind of treating our investors as partners. Um, and I think that is, you know, as true today as it was back in 1997 when we set up the company.
1: Anthony, you know, if you can reflect upon the type of people that you've hired, let's say 15, 20 years ago, and look at the skill set that you're looking for now, let's just take an analyst, for instance, in your company. You know, how has that changed in, ter- in terms of the type of people that you're looking for and the skill sets that they can bring to the firm?
2: Yeah, I think there's. Was- I mean, I, I think if you look back, it's interesting, John, if you'd ask the question saying, asking the difference between the people we were looking, we were hiring 20 years ago by comparison now, I'd say there is, <clears throat> actually there is kind of quite a, a, a shift because kind of 20 years ago, 20, say 25 years ago, uh, what we were looking for was really strong all-rounders, very strong all-rounders. Um, you know, although when we set up the company, um, we were fortunate enough to be able to build know, to. Um, um, to raise a significant amount of working capital for the company, uh, you know, right from the start, and a significant amount of seed capital for the business, and that enables to build a strong infrastructure day one. You know, when we started trading, we had a 24-hour trading desk, which was pretty much unheard of at that, you know, at that stage. <clears throat> um, still, um, you know, you know, for that size of, kind of team, it was important to have people with a broad level of, kind of expertise, broad level of experience, people able to. Contributes, as I said broadly you know, across a broad front. Um where that's kind of shifted, I mean that shifted I would say um over, you know, over during the early 2000s, um, is we're in the position then to be able to recruit specialists, you know, real specialists, so you know, specialists, I mean not only specialists researchers, but people can specialize in certain areas of research. I think if you look at the people, I mean in terms of if we are looking at say um you know, research analyst today, by comparison with, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I I think there are some very common elements we're looking for. Um, You know, obviously, very strong academics, that almost kind of goes out kind of saying. Um, But, you know, individuals with an inquiring mind, um, you know, individuals who are self-critical. But also that cultural element, John, is just so, so, so important, actually. Finding finding people with a strong academics, in some ways, that's in the recruitment process. That's the early, that's the easy kind of part of the job. The challenge is actually kind of finding people who can combine that really kind of strong academic, disciplined approach um, with um, an alignment in terms of kind of cultural kind of values. I mean, on the one hand, we want people with a broad range of different experiences, different backgrounds, different kind of academic trainings. You know, we we need that di- you know, diverse range of input styles and views. That stimulates innovation <clears throat> but something which where, where we need commonality we need kind of commonality in, in terms of that that cultural side so the people we need kind to of people who want to be part of the team who believe and are able to contribute to a collaborative culture people who exhibit integrity um people who actually just as i said want to who will thrive in that collegiate environment that in terms of recruitment that's the challenge find those people with with those kind of cultural attributes um,
1: talent certainly one challenge that you know, all firms face in today's environment. Uh, if you reflect upon, again, you know what, the times when you set up your hedge fund to those folks that are setting up hedge funds today, what advice would you give them relative to whether it be talent or anything in you know across the board in um, setting up a fund today? Three
2: pieces of advice, John. Um, one of the most important pieces of advice I have given you know back in nineteen ninety-seven is you've got a plan um, that it's gonna take three years for, you know, for the for the business to get traction. Um and that three years is just so important, just in terms of having the patience <clears throat> and having the the strength of balance sheet to be able to you know to take to be patient and come take time to actually build out the business. You know, so I mentioned that when we when we started our business that was nineteen ninety-seven. Our first fund started in 1998, um, and and that, you know, that, that period, end of 1998, running into 1999, nobody was interested in what we were doing, nobody. Um, and then suddenly, you know, the world just completely pivoted on its axis you know, during the period to come 2000, 2001, 2002. And it was actually pretty much three years to the day after we launched that we started getting significant interest from investors. So three years, three-year time span. Um, I think it's important setting out a business plan. Um, so it's just set, so, you know, making sure that you know, as a founding team, you know, strong recommendation and actually you know, writing down in paper what kind of business you actually can try to build. You know, what are the kind of goals? You know, what type of programs you can try? trying to, trying to come build. Who's going to be the kind of target investor base? What kind of culture do you actually can want to build? Set, writing that down in black and white, I think is kind of absolutely kind of crucial. Third piece of advice is, you know, choose your, choose your team carefully, choose your team carefully. and that, that again just comes that, again, to that kind of cultural side. I said I was very fortunate that I was able to kind of set up a business with Marty Lewick, who I, I'd known you know, since university days, Eugene Lambert, who I'd worked with since 1992. So as a founding team, we trusted each other, we knew each other you know, absolutely inside out. That that made a huge difference in terms of getting the business off the ground.
0: Anthony, there must have been a testing period, you alluded to it, that for three years, you said it, it, it took before that breakthrough happened for your business. I, I would add to that, I guess, an unwavering determination to see it out, right? Because there, there must have been moments where you were like, are, are we doing the right thing?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, <laughs> We, we did, and in the, in the first year, between 1997 and 1998, we had, I remember well, we, know, we had 62 meetings with investors, um, and we raised no money at all. You know, we were, after that combination of seed capital and working capital, we were, we had a, such a strong belief in, in what we were doing. We had absolute kind of conviction um, that we could actually build a business that would actually could generate the performance that institutional investors needed you know, in their portfolios. And nobody was listening. Nobody was listening. So yeah, that that no escaping that you know, that period in those early days, um, that was definitely kind of challenging. Um, you know, somewhat kind of disconcerting. But again, I can come back to we had our conviction, we had our business plan. Um, um, you know, we said, said we're going to give this kind three years. This is not just a short-term sprint, it's kind of you know longer-term marathon. So although the first year was um, was unsettling. Um, we All three of us took sort of the view. It's just the first year. We've, we, we said we're going to give this three years. We will give it three
0: years. Excellent advice. Um, let's pivot for a moment and discuss the megatrends that are impacting the asset management industry and the world at large. Arguably, the biggest megatrend and, and certainly the most talked about topic right now is the growing influence of technology. And by this, we mean AI, artificial intelligence. So what is your view on artificial intelligence?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, my view is that we are a technology-led business. Technology is at the core of what what we do. Um, In terms of, you know, a branch of artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, uh, we've been running, uh, we've been researching and running a set of machine learning models um, actually for a number of years now. Um, So in terms of all the of discussion about um uh, you know about g b t large language models um it, we see this as being a very 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 you know kind of strong capability um that could could actually be transformational you know, for, you know, for us um you know and for the concept in general but it does come with risks, and i think it's so that's that's the you know what we're exploring we're exploring uh, we're already kind of using come kind of chat and you know, in a number of areas we see it as being as I said potentially kind of transformational across a broad range of, you know, of of our business in research in actually kind of writing kind of code um, you know potentially uh, you know in on the kind of marketing investment relation side on the kind of legal side um, it has potentially a very kind of strong impact across the business but we also need to actually kind of think about the potential risks and if I could just highlight kind of a couple there. <clears throat> the, the first is um, that for years and years and years, and I talked about the inception of, you know, of Aspect, um, one of the key goals of Aspect was to actually provide very strong diversifying returns but combine that with a high level of transparency about what we do. We want to be in a position where we can explain to our investors the drivers of returns. We spend a lot of time, a lot of, kind of effort um, communicating very closely with our investors and providing that transparency. But now in the implementation of, say, of models using say, of, or imp- implementation of research, for instance using contract GBT, um, finding a way in which you can actually deploy contract GBT, but at the same time retain the ability to be able to explain well, what are the models doing and how is the re- return actually being generated. That I think is an important challenge that we need to consider. The other um, area um, is, which is you know, allied to that, um, is we always can talk about our research being hypothesis led. Every piece of research that we can do, we start by actually um, identifying and writing down, articulating a very kind of clear hypothesis about what um, elements of market behavior, what, are we, what effect are we actually can kind of try to capture here um so again we, we you know we believe in a hypothesis led approach rather than a data led approach you know, for us as i said that hypothesis starting every research project with that hypothesis statement is important again being able to come do that i think we've been able to come do that in terms of the work we've done in machine learning um but there's a danger of of using some of these kind of models in a completely unstructured you know, kind of format um and generating models which potentially have a very interesting return profile but having um, limited ability to be able to actually understand what effect is being captured. Third risk, of course, just is one of IP leakage. in, in, you know, in terms of you know, applying kind of ChatGPT, chat you know, to kind of write code, there are you know, you know, opportunities we can actually kind of see there, which could be kind of you know, really um, you, know, you know very attractive. Um, you, know, um, you, know, in, you know, in terms of, if you like, kind of productivity, in terms of our ability to be able to make a white code as a business, um, but at the same time, we have to be able to come kind of, do that while actually kind of, retaining our, our, the protection of our kind of, intellectual kind of, property and making sure that our intellectual property doesn't actually just go kind of, leak out to the outside world. That's another challenge that needs to be addressed.
1: Anthony, there's a lot of discussion that, that open AI and the, uh, these types of um, tools Will allow competitors or new entrants to the business um, catch up to you quicker because um, they're because they, the tools that, in, you know, as you mentioned, that you've generated over the years, uh, a lot of that has been built into your systems. Does this give them a little bit of a head start? And how, how would you comment on that?
2: No, uh, I, I I mean I think um, it, you know in, in coming back. I mean you know across the business today across aspects day, you know we run a, a wide range of different capabilities I mean, we've got focus so far we've got to talk quite a bit about our kind of trend following capability um but you know we also run for instance a highly kind diversified multi strat um, um you know, program which is able to select from the 250 different models you know we run as a company um and you know that the performance Objective of that program is very much an absolute return, very steady absolute return performance objective. Now, you know, on the you know, on the trend following side, I think it's always been the case that um, you know trend following, you know, trend following models. Um, there are many different textbooks, and you know, you know, academic articles, there are you know articles on the on the web describing how to actually build you know a you know, trend following model. So, I was actually going to say that information is already out there, but it's one thing to actually understand the fundamental the principles of trend following, it's a completely kind of different matter to actually kind of build you know, a long-term sustainable kind of business, and that, to me, that's the big, the big difference. So, in terms of, kind of chat, you know, kind of GPT or large language models, is then the ability to build a kind of structure potentially um, generate a range of different models, you know, yes, absolutely, I see that. Um, but actually kind of transforming that and actually building a business out of that, kind of building a business which is you know, robust, you know, it you know, it's resilient, it's scalable, and as I said, it's able to actually provide transparency, it's able to provide liquidity. Um, it, you know, it's able, it's a you know, business where you know, it has those cultural attributes I have talked about, works in, in you know in close kind partnership with investors. That's a very, very, very kind of difficult, different kind of proposition. And to me, the barriers to entry. To build a significant business of um, um, way higher than they were twenty five years ago now twenty five years ago we launched aspect with forty million of seed capital now forty million of seed capital in 1998 was a was a fairly major launch today wouldn't wouldn't even touch the sides and wouldn 't even touch the sides um, and that 's you know my view now that investors the level of operational due diligence, the level of research com due diligence is significantly higher than it was 25 years ago. And therefore, the barriers to entry to actually build a business today are incredibly kind of high. That's the challenge.
0: Clearly. Arguably, the other mega trend is um, responsible investment or sustainable investment, wherever you are in the world. Um, and so how do you then view... ESG and sustainable investment through the lens of your investment strategy.
2: That I think on the, I mean, on, you know, if you're an equity investor, you know, that is a challenge. You know, you know, that is a kind of challenge in itself. It's I think in in the markets we trade. So bear in mind the, the majority of the markets we trade, we're trading futures, forwards, interest rate swaps, kind of credit, non liberal kind of forwards. Uh, the whole nature of um of, you know of looking at those markets through an e s g or sustainable lens is is even more complex and it's it's an issue that investors are still wrestling with you know we and in the industry in general you know in, in terms of you know our sector we're all kind of wrestling with this you know we're working very closely with our investors you know on this we'd we'd love to actually kind build you know, a, you know a program um that was able to actually meet those you know ESG and sustainable kind of, you know, credentials it's as said in the futures um, world. Well, I think it's a very 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 kind of tough challenge I hope we can actually come meet that challenge um, we haven't been able to as yet and therefore our focus is rather than actually focusing on you know, ESG CSR um, from a program perspective from an investment perspective um, where we've really come kind of focused our attention is on the business perspective um, and actually, can try to make absolutely sure we do everything we can to actually can meet those you know, ESG requirements, the CSR you know, requirements at the business level rather than the program level. And I think the best example of that um, is we managed to we managed to secure B Corporation certification. You know, during the course of last year. Um, and you know, for you know, for those listeners who are not familiar with B Corporation. Um, That requires an undertaking, it actually requires a a change in our articles of association as a business to ensure that we're running the business along lines which actually can make sure that we are focused not just on our shareholders but we're focused on our stakeholders and doing everything we kind of possibly can to look after our stakeholders. When I talk about our stakeholders, I mean um, that is actually looking after um, not only our shareholders but looking after our employees the community, our investors, the environment. So that's something as a business we're we're very proud of. And I think that's that's where the the big focus of business has been in that area. You
1: know, Anthony, Aspect Capital is part of a, you know, the broader alternative investment uh, management industry, the hedge fund industry. You know, if you were to look at, you know, the hedge fund industry in the years to come, how optimistic are you about the growth of the industry, the ability for it to uh, play an important role in in asset management, and maybe on a scale of one to five, how optimistic you are about the industry in general.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very optimistic about the outlook, um, and you know, I think the, the key driver for my out for my optimism, John, is that you know over the course of the last kind of forty years, we've seen this extraordinary kind of bull market in in stock markets and bond markets, you know, which obviously got hit. A significant significant kind of, from um in um, you know air pocket actually going during the course of last year now my my strong belief now is that the market environment the economic environment we're actually kind of seeing today is completely different from the last kind of forty years um, and that the, uh, the the market um environment we're actually going to see over the course of the next five, ten, fifteen years is going to be totally different, totally different. last 40 years therefore what's worked in the last kind of 40 years is not necessarily going to be kind of fit for purpose over the course next 10 or 15 years now what i think that means is that investors are absolutely going to need to actually find these diversifying sources of return diversifying sources of return which are not reliant on the rising tide of stock and bond markets Uh, and that is what many not all many kind of hedge fund styles can actually provide and and, and in particular coming back to home base, coming back to, you know, managed futures, coming back to you know, trend following, it's obviously kind of shown that ability to be able to provide diversifying returns um, during a wide range of different market environments, stagnation environment, um, hard landing, soft landing, um, a broad range of different market environments. So in terms of um, looking at, uh, you know, if you like, from a very um, parochial kind of standpoint, in terms of the range of different capabilities that, that, that we've built, spanning from trend-following through to multi-strat, they've been very much kind of built on the, you know, on the basis that we need to actually kind of build you know, a, a set of programs which are robust, whatever the markets can actually come through at them over the course of next, come 10 or 15 years, but there's definitely none of the programs we run are dependent on that rising tide of stock and bond markets. So in terms of the, you know, the managed futures sector you know, in general, in terms of the kind of concept in general, you know, I would say you were asking for the, John on a scale of one to five. I you know, I'd be five. You know, in terms of the ability of of certain sectors to be able to meet those investors' requirements, I wouldn't give you know the whole hedge fund sector a five because my concern is that you know within the hedge fund sector there are certain styles which are um, you know heavily reliant on rising stocks, rising bonds. They've got kind of hidden kind of beta, um, you know, kind of in there, and again. What, in fact, the trend we're actually kind seeing today, with the increasing numbers of hedge funds increasing the length of their lockups, so some of you've actually got to me a kind of quite a dangerous kind of combination of, of um, some kind of funds not able to comply with the transparency, potentially kind of hidden levels of beta, um, and you know less and less you know, attractive liquidity terms for investors. So that's why I wouldn't be a, a five for, for the entire sector. It'd be more cautious of that.
1: And maybe Anthony, that's why the multi-strat um, trend that, that folks are aspiring today. You do multi-strat within the context of your investment strategy, and then there are other firms that are, as you, they're setting up now, trying to provide um, access to a multitude of strategies as as markets change, as as you know, as you said, the next the next ten years is going to be very diff- different than the last forty years. Um, and obviously, you've built that into your things, but the, the whole multi strat platform, maybe you just can comment on that briefly.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, it, and again, it's always, I always think it's very risky actually just kind talking about an entire sector and, and actually, you know, referring to a particular sector in a homogeneous format. Um, you know, if you look at the managed future sector, by example, there's so dispersion in terms of um, investment come styles and significant dispersion in terms of returns, of course, last few years. So I'm very cautious about, um, you know, you know, painting that that multi-strat, multi-manager type type of sector as a homogeneous sector. There are some extremely kind of, strong um, you know, competitors there. They've generated remarkable returns. Um, um, and as I said we can't argue with that return profile. Um, but I think the kind of cautionary, the three-cautionary notes that I kind strike is, you know, is you know, one, the longer lockups. You know, just at the point when investors, I think, are going to need that liquidity, um, we're actually kind of seeing some managers in that sector moving in the opposite direction. Um, I do have, I mean, you've talked about the risk of crowding in our sector. Um, I tried to kind of rebut that with the, you know, with the research we've done, but I can see with the flood of money going into that, that, that multi-PM sector, there is a risk of crowding there. Um, the third risk is, is obviously a, a risk that's always been there in that sector. is the lack of transparency. Um, being able to articulate to you know, to investors what's actually driving the returns is very different, very difficult uh, with that type of structure.
1: And, and obviously also very difficult to build out the infrastructure to support all those products as well.
2: Yep, exactly. exactly.
0: Anthony, it has been terrific to hear from you today and you've given our listeners a real treat. Uh, so thank you so much.
1: And Anthony, outside of Aspect Capital, what are the types of um, organizations and types of things that you that you that you have passion about and and are working toward?
2: Yeah, I mean, John, thank you, thank you for the good question. I mean, you know, on that side, you know, you know, at Aspect, I think we're very proud of all the work we've actually done from a charitable standpoint. Um, so I mentioned how in the very early days, one of the first things we did was you know, we wrote a cultural plan, we wrote a business plan, we also set up a charities committee. Um and in the early days I was actually on the charity committee um and then actually kind of quite quickly decided that actually the charity committee was only going to work, in fact, if, if it had its own momentum. I didn't want it to be something that I was driving. I you know I wanted to be kind of seen as something that had its own momentum. And, and I'm really pleased with the what we've actually kind of done there. That you know, every year um we um, as a company we vote on a charity to, you know, to support um the, the charity last year we've yet to actually vote on. We'll be voting over the summer uh, for the charity this year. Last year we supported a charity called Fair Share, um, which is one of the, uh, Britain's kind of lead, leading kind of food banks and food redistributing kind of businesses. Uh, but all that work from a charity perspective is important. And from a personal standpoint, three charities I support. Um, I was unlucky enough um, to go down with sepsis. Um, during the latter part of last year, I was in hospital for, you know, for a kind of couple of weeks um and um i I had no idea at all about um you know the number of, kind of people affected by kind of sepsis and actually who passed away as a result of sepsis you know, every year so that's a charity more recently i got involved with um another kind of, um, um area i've supported for many years my you know, my mother always comes said to me you know anthony you can make sure you can take pe- take care of people less fortunate than than, than, than yourself." Um, And so actually homeless charities have always been important to me, so it's a charity called The Passage, uh, which I've supported for a number of years in the the homeless kind of category. Then the final area is is more from a, um, in terms of an environmental um, no of of charity focusing in Africa, a charity called Wild Philanthropy. So those are three areas I support personally, um, but as I said, no aspect as, as a business. Um has a very strong you know, philanthropic culture as well.
1: That's terrific. That thank you, thank you for all of that.
2: John, ab- absolute pleasure. Appreciate appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the questions.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of Amos, the Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.